2: This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today we talk with John Bradley, who plays Samuel Tarly on HBO's Game of Thrones. The final season of the fantasy drama premieres Sunday, April 14th. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke will talk about Game of Thrones and new masterpiece miniseries Les Miserables. Then we'll talk with Joe Otterson about what The End of Thrones means for HBO, for TV, and the world. Stay tuned. John Bradley, thank you for
3: doing this. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure.
2: So, um, not that anyone who watches the show needs reminding, but where did we leave Sam 20 months ago at the end of the previous season of game of thrones
3: 20 months we really are testing people's yeah. patience this <laughs> time they normally had to wait you know 42 weeks for 10 episodes this time we're making them wait 18 months for six episodes it feels like a lifetime ago but last time we saw sam he'd done his season at the citadel become completely disenchanted with that and and completely dispirited by by what that did to him in terms of coming up against so much resistance to his progressive proactive ideas you learn a lot about him in season seven because because you really did see that he does want to make a difference and he's not going to the citadel for an easy life for himself he's going there because he thinks that's the place where he can properly use the skills that he has in order to make a difference and and, and fight the same war as everybody else is fighting but fighting it in his own way And i think what he did find there was a lot of people who do actually want a quiet life and they want, and they don't want to put their head above the parapet and they just want to eke out their last few days in relative comfort. And that angered Sam so much in terms of... He knows the importance of knowledge. He knows the importance of academia and he knows that there are secrets in amongst all those books that can affect things, that can change the whole course of this war and the whole course of history, but the people he encountered there didn't seem to believe in it as much as he did. They were just completely... Uh, down to, uh, you know, push the pen, and and have as quiet a life as possible. And so Sam left the Citadel. In, in kind of one of the lowest states we've ever seen him, but also galvanised as well. One of the lowest states because that seat of learning was what he aspired to his entire life. He just he had this idea of the Citadel as a kind of over the rainbow place where, you know, you're telling me there's a place where academia and knowledge is prized and I'm not going to be an outcast because I can't fight. It's, it's, he always saw that as a place where he belonged after not belonging anywhere. Didn't belong at home, didn't belong in the Night's Watch. And then he gets there and he finds out he doesn't belong there either. He's an outsider again and an outcast again because his ideas are too progressive. So he's he's, he's dispirited it dispirited about that because he's invested so much into this place that just completely let him down but he's also galvanized because he's worked out that being accepted into these institutions isn't important it's about adhering to your own moral code and not Mm -hmm. letting rules and scripture and regulations get in the way of what you consider to be right so he's kind of buoyed by the fact that now he doesn't have to follow anybody else's rules he's guided by his own principles and his own sense of right and wrong. And his own sense of right and wrong is to protect people that need protecting, to protect the people that he loves in terms of Gilly and Baby Sam most of all, but also go back to Winterfell and go back to the the thick of it and get right back into the middle of the action. And we saw him at the end of season seven in his final moments back at Winterfell, at Winterfell for the first time in Sam's case with Bran Stark. And, And, you know, there are certain key pieces of information in season seven that were revealed and and Sam and Bran get together to di- discuss what, the kind of, what they're going to do with that knowledge. And that was really exciting for me because as an actor, especially in a show where there are so many characters and so many worlds and it's such a vast landscape, the one thing that you want to feel more than anything is important. Even if you don't necessarily have as much screen time as other people or, you know, you're, you know, it's not exactly at the very, very centre of things in terms of, in terms of a Jon Snow or a Daenerys or a Tyrion, what you want to feel is this show isn't going to end the same way as it would have if I wasn't here. And I think that for the last couple of years, the season six with the, with the, the journey down to the Citadel, which took a whole season and then, then pretty much a whole season at the Citadel, we've been happy with, in terms of me and Hannah, we've been happy with the work that we've been doing, but we have felt slightly on the outskirts and like satellite characters almost with our own narrative and our own story that is you know, connected to the main thrust of it but we're just not right in the centre of it and not, not right where the action is and this, you know, coming at the end of season seven and going into season eight we feel right back at the heart of things again and that's always very exciting and I think what you'll get most of all this season is a lot of people coming together and there's now a kind of there's a real epicenter of all the action and it all kind of gravitates around one place and to have Simon Gilly right back in the heart of that was really exciting.
2: Well, as an actor, I mean, how... You know, what's the the trade-off, right, for what you just described for the last two seasons? Because on one hand, you know, you described it as a satellite narrative. Yeah. Um, But it's also your narrative. So you're at the center of most of your own scenes as opposed to... um, you know there were certainly scenes in previous seasons where maybe Sam was just like yeah that's a great idea john yeah um so i mean do you view it as like a plus minus situation
3: it's definitely a it's definitely a plus minus situation and i and i, ge- I genuinely couldn't be any happier with with my narrative arc over the course of this uh se- the whole series not just necessarily because of sam's progression as a character but also in terms of my experience of experiencing being known and experiencing fame for the kind of you know to use a kind of what's turned into quite a vulgar term these days, but to use to to experience fame that way, where you start off in this big thing, but you are more peripheral and you are more background, and you and you do occupy a, occupy a, a sidekick space, and that's fine. That that's that's really nice to have a couple of seasons like that, where not all of the attention is on you. You can still do work and you can still affect things and you can still be satisfied artistically, but your photo isn't everywhere. You're not like an Amelia or a kit where they went from obscurity suddenly into leading this huge thing and being known everywhere and the whole world being interested in them. I never I never had that. Mine was a very gentle path towards my own narrative. And but by the time I, I had it where Sam uh, takes Gilly away from Crasters, and they make their way back to Castle Black in the second half of season three. We've been doing the show two and a half years then, so I, I, I felt that I, that was the first time I was really able to carry a, a narrative on my own. So I, I didn't, I didn't really feel the pressure of it early on, and I'm and I'm very happy with that. And I'd like to think that, you know, satellite and I keep using like satellite and, and peripheral for to talk about my seasons and my storyline. But I, I genuinely do think that they have a different, unique texture to them that I don't think is necessarily in the rest of the series. And, and, and you know, in terms of in terms of Sam and Gilly's blossoming relationship when they were together, they had a couple of seasons together. That's much slower pace and it's more gentle and it's it feels very human. And, you know, their relationship of two two slightly maladjusted people falling in love, that doesn't necessarily have to be in a fantasy landscape. That can be anywhere. That can that can be two characters from any show who uh, are, you know have a lot of psychological boundaries and are very battle-scarred and they feel they've been kicked around by life. They fall in love and they start to lean on each other and they, they encourage each other to grow. That's not a fantasy trope at all. That's a dramatic trope, but that can be... In anything, and and you know, in terms of the work that I did later on with Jim Broadbent in season seven, that felt great because that was that was a, a much more slower, much more, much more kind of exploratory, verbose, still dramatic, but but it, it felt much, it felt more kind of theatrical in a way because there was a lot of talking, and I and I and I really enjoyed that because I think that that does bring a unique flavour to things, and, and you, you you don't feel that you are necessarily just wasting screen time on on a satellite thing because you're bringing something to the show that isn't necessarily found anywhere else so you do still feel important in terms of the overall pacing and the overall light and shade but sometimes you you do miss out on the action a little bit and and i found that particularly interesting when people come up and say oh you know we like game of thrones and i say oh great uh, and thank you very much and they say well yeah, Battle of the Bastards, that was my favourite episode. What an amazing episode. And I don't know what to say because I'm not in it. I'm not say- I'm, I'm not saying that's why it's their favourite. But, but like, like you don't know what to say thank you very much because you don't feel connected to it. All you can yeah. kind of say is, yeah, I know it was great. Because you, you do feel that about episodes that you're not in. There's so much you're not in, you can watch the rest of it like a fan watches it. But it feels a strange kind of disconnect where I feel tangentially involved in it because I'm involved in a lot of the show but when when talk, people talk about certain moments that I'm not involved in I can't claim ownership of them because I had no input I can just kind of enjoy it like everybody else
2: I would also think that for anyone who's a fan of the show, of the show which is not like a select group of people yeah, no, it's no, no. the most popular show in the world um, the, if you really did enjoy that episode you would realize how the guy that I'm talking to right now is not actually in that episode
3: yeah oh yeah that's kind of true, but it all it all feeds into everything because Battle of the Bastards as an episode only works because over the course of not only that season but the series as a whole up to that point they 'd invested a lot of time in these characters and in terms of their motives and in terms of you know what they want from life, what their principles are, who you know where they stand on the kind of moral spectrum the a big epic cinematic battle episode like that is only really effective if you know what it means to every single person in it and there's a jeopardy there a lot of people you know think oh, uh, imagine if every episode was like that what an amazing show it'd be but it wouldn't because it wouldn't mean anything you, Battle of the Bastards only works because you know what it means to Jon Snow and, and, and they've done all of that laying that groundwork of everybody's psycholog- where everybody is psychologically and then that's a kind of climax of it all where it all This fireworks because it's all coming to a head and and it it only happens when it's designed to happen and if Battle of the Bastards is a great episode as it is, if that was your first episode of of the series, the first episode anybody ever seen it'd be a great visual experience but there'd be no heart to it and I think that one thing that this show does as well as it does you know, the kind of things on a larger scale is they do talking really well and they do characters really well and some of the most affecting scenes in it are just two characters talking. So to get that balance, I think there's something for everybody in there. And we don't kid ourselves. We we kind of think that so many people like Game of Thrones and there's so many reasons to like it. There may be certain people who may find Sam and Gilly's journey towards falling in love and journey towards healing their scars to be quite uh, unsatisfying and quite frustrating because they want to see... Battles and that's fine. You'll get a battle eventually, but I think for people who are more invested in a slow burn examination of two damaged people, there's that for them as well. And you know, everybody has something in there that they like, and the fact that everybody, you know, everybody's got different favourite characters, and not only everybody's got different favourite characters. Every character is probably someone's favourite character all of that stuff takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of man hours to get those characters to a point where people care about them. It's only if people care about a character that they care if they live or die. And if they don't care if they live or die, a battle doesn't mean anything. So the show really does have something for everybody and it it, it respects all levels of viewership, all ages. And one of the things that I think works, one of the things that I think makes the show such a success is that as a fantasy show, it's not what anybody sees when they look out of their window. And that's why it's become global. Because if you take a show like Sopranos, one of my favorite shows, but if you live in New Jersey, you can probably connect to it slightly more readily than than somebody in Tokyo can, for example. They still love it as a drama, but it just feels slightly closer to home. With, With Game of Thrones, everybody all over the world has to make that intellectual leap. And, every, and everybody has to go to Westeros mentally before that they can before they can experience it, and because of that, it's a great unifying thing. The foreignness of it is the thing that makes it kind of universal. It makes it, yeah. it, it, makes it universal. Yeah, everybody kind of join hand, joins hands and takes that leap together, and and that's why I think it is so popular because it unites people, and there's something for everybody in there, depending on what you want. And yeah, it's it, that that doesn't kind of happen by accident. It's a lot of hard work and graft on the part of. David and Dan, um you got cast shortly out of school, yeah, I was still at at, at drama school when I did the first audition, yeah, I was at the end of a three year course being trained in drama, and yeah, that seems like a lifetime ago now how i mean how at what point
2: during because you've been with this character this show since nearly the beginning um at what point, not having the perspective of having really had you know, a career yeah. before, before getting cast, at what point did you realize um, you know, this thing is going to be different than most other things?
3: That's, that's an interesting question because I think, I think going all the way back to season one, none of us had any indication of how big it was going to be. It's different for people who've joined the, the show later on because they know what they're joining there's there's a frame of reference especially people who've joined from say after season three where the momentum really started to build and you know the the PR campaigns became so much bigger and everybody started to be aware of it even if they didn't watch it they were aware of it and it it kind of was starting to establish its place in the cultural landscape but going back to when we started I don't think we realised but David and Dan certainly realised and HBO realised just how much of a gamble it was because HBO had never done anything like it before, and fantasy back then, I, th- I think we we've got rid of a lot of those boundaries and a lot of that prejudice. Fantasy did feel like a, a niche thing that was aimed at a certain fan base and a certain demographic, and so that, so I think they thought, you know, are, are we going to be able to f- have a show that appeals to people who like The Wire and people who like Lord of the Rings? And that may not have happened. That that just may not have happened. Somebody was like, oh, you remember that that. Game of Thrones show that had one season and it sank without trace. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Remember that. But but we've never really concerned ourselves with how big the show is, because that's up to everybody else. When you're on a set in Belfast and you're talking to Kit Harrington across a table, you can't possibly hold it in your mind how big it is because you'll get crushed under it. You'll get crushed under the the expectation of it and what it means to people. And if you're you're doing a scene and you know that, you know, President Obama's gonna watch it you're not going to be able to feel the scene and feel the moment. So I think we've always been more more interested in making a good show rather than the big show. I think big, the size of it in terms of how many people watch it, that takes care of itself. But nobody's going to really watch it if it's not good. But but I think because we shoot it in primarily in Belfast, but in Spain and bits of Iceland and Croatia and places, it's only when we really come to America, when we start to come to America for our season three premiere was our first year that we did a premiere in LA. And that's when you start to feel that you're involved in something that is global because it doesn't necessarily feel like an American show when you're filming it because you're in Northern Ireland. You know, primarily a local crew and an English crew and David and Dan are always there. But, but, but it can almost feel like a local project sometimes because everything's quite insular and you see the same people every year and, and you, the place that you're filming this show has the same supermarkets and the same TV channels <laughs> and all that stuff is home. It, can, it doesn't necessarily feel like you're in an American thing. But when we came to LA, in, uh, it must have been 2013 for our season three premiere, that's when we first started to think, oh, well, we're one of those shows now. Because you see you, you, you see premieres on telly, and, and the big American shows that you're in awe of, and sometimes it's hard to place yourself in that. You just don't see yourself as being part of that lineup of shows. But that was the first indication that oh, we may be we may be one of those shows, and we may be global. And we, as much as you try and resist those thoughts, because you know, as I've said, that you sometimes can't cope with that the magnitude of that expectation or you know, the idea that you're in a show that's as big as Sopranos was, that's almost hard to imagine sometimes because when you're in something, you've got a completely different relationship than everybody else has. I remember being I remember being, being with Kit at Comic Con, I think that same year, and we were talking about, about, about Sopranos, and I just said, I, I, I just don't, I was watching it at the time, and I was like, I just don't feel we're ever going to get there. I just don't feel we're ever going to get there and just be as as respected and and as revered as that show is. And he was, I like, know, I don't think we will either. And that's so weird to think of now because that was going into season three. We've done so many seasons since then. It's almost like do you know when you're at school and you're in the first year of school and then you get a guy in the third year of school or you know, and he always he seems like twenty years older than you. <laughs> And he seems so much more adult and he just seems so much more impressive. And no matter what you go through life, even if you're forty seven and he's fifty, he always feels like he's out of your reach. That you're never gonna get there. You're never gonna be that adult. And I think that's how we feel about other shows, that they set such a template and we're pointless. It's pointless even us trying to get there, because they're always gonna be something that we can never achieve and I'm sure shows are going to think that about us as well but in the same way that people thought that about you when you were in third year of school first years thought that about you you're constantly playing catch-up and you're I think that's a good thing in a way it's good to be ambitious and it's good to have standards that you set yourself but as soon as you reach your standards as soon as we start to bowl around thinking oh we're as big as sopranos then that's when a little bit of the magic would wear off you should always be aiming for something and we're aiming for that standard and yeah. Fingers, are you comfortable,
2: crossed. though, now with the idea that you guys are as big as Sopranos? Because you are, by any measure, the show is.
3: Still not, really. And that, it's an interesting thing, being in it, because when you, see, when you see Sopranos, you just see it as a finished, polished product. And you almost, even if you've been in TV for years or film for years, you don't see the work. You just see it as a piece of art. You don't see... You can if you want, I'm sure, but you don't see outtakes. You don't see bits of ADR. You don't see people suddenly standing in the wrong place or you you don't see those little fluffs and those little mistakes. They're going to be in there, but you just don't see them because, they're, because you just see it from an outsider's point of view. But when when I watch the show a lot of the time, especially my own performance, I had to think, oh, that ADR is a little bit obvious and I didn't quite sit in the right place there you can't quite see this side of my face and you see the imperfections of it and because you see the imperfections that nobody else would see because they're tiny really it kind of mars your version of it your kind of perception of it somehow it's like when when the Beatles started to release every year they do it now they release a big box set with outtakes and and demos and stuff and some people find that interesting I've always resisted that because I think I'd like to see it as complete I don't want to hear all the time it's perfect don't want to hear all the times they got it wrong and all, all the stuff that wasn't good enough to make it. I just want to see it as a perfect thing. And if you're in it and you're involved in that process, you can't see beyond some of those little imperfections of things. So I think that's why we see ourselves as being, as as them being on a different level, because we weren't there for that, that what I'm sure was a very grueling and ultimately satisfying, but a hard process. We never saw that. We just see the final product and that's why our relationship to it's different I think what um,
2: uh, what about Sam's journey has surprised you like where has he gone that you maybe didn't expect
3: <clears throat> one of the things that I found, so, find so interesting about that journey is the fact that a lot of people ask <clears throat> what has he learned about himself he's clearly learned a lot about himself over the course of the series but I think it's more important to think of what he's unlearned about himself because when when you first see him in that very first episode, he's clearly somebody who is is crippled by insecurity and self doubt, and doesn't believe he's worth anything. and And says in his first scene that he's a coward. My father always called me a coward, and I think that's quite crucial because if you're raised, if you're born into that environment and raised in an environment as a as an impressionable child, where somebody's constantly telling you you're no good and you're a coward, and you're going to be a liability for the rest of your life. You're going to believe it. And that's the thing about Sam. He's just believed everything that he was told about himself at home. And he gets to Castle Black and you just see somebody who's completely devoid of any self-confidence or any feeling of self-worth. And over the course of the series, it's not that he acquires things. He just loses all of that. He loses all of that baggage and those emotional scars heal. And he finds out that he was brave enough all along and um, and he should never have listened to people who told him that he wasn't because he he kills the first person to kill a white walker, he falls in love and takes on the mantle of parenthood, he achieves all of these things and slowly but surely you see him start to think well maybe they were wrong about me and maybe I, I actually am brave and it's a three way journey because Sam experiences all of that those changes in him and 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 that process of unlearning and stripping away all the layers and finding that beating heart inside him, which is brave. The audience go on the same journey because they're forgiven for thinking when they first see him that he's all the things that his father said he is. Cause they've got no reason to think otherwise, and so they see him grow and they see what he achieves. And myself as an actor as well, I got to go on that journey with him, and it's a it's a very transformative narrative in terms of how he starts episode four of season one, where he comes into it and how he finishes you know, finishes all the way down to the end of season seven. That It's almost like a different person. You're seeing somebody with so much more toughness about them and guile about them. And you get that, or Sam gets that through achievement. He had to achieve all of this stuff before he'd really give himself a shot. I think that's the most surprising thing that just where he ends up you just don't think he's got the potential for it when you first see him and because he didn't believe he had the potential for it himself and so that awakening it's just been a, it's been it's it's been a slow burn there's no quick transformations and that's what comes from having 10 hours a season to live yeah. with these characters and all these seasons over the course of a even 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 over the course of a trilogy like Lord of the Rings it's still only where 9 hours or something that's not even a season for us so a lot of those those kind of psychological and emotional journeys have to be sped up or have to be expedited to the final pond. but with us we've a, the change is almost imperceptible the same when if you if if you really kind of look at a clock you won't see the time change and you've got to look away and then look back if you put if you put season 1 any of these characters and then season 7 the same character side by side they've changed unbelievably or not physically yes because the actors have but in terms of their emotions their psychology what they've learned the experiences they've had they're just different people, and that's it's been, that's why it's such a privilege to play that in you know, over the course of eight seasons, where you know the constant development and the constant putting them in situations that they've never been in before. That's that's why you, that's why you've ended up with this with this ca- this cast of unbelievably rich characters because you've been with them throughout all these experiences and seen how it's changed them, and you feel like you've lived a whole lifetime with them by the end of season seven and especially going into season eight where you know a lot of stuff's going to come to a head and a lot of those you know those journeys you know narratively in terms of the show those journeys are going to end john thanks very much thank you what a pleasure thanks so much man
2: I'm Michael Schneider, inviting you to join me each week on the Variety Podcast, My Favorite Episode. It's where stars and producers gather to discuss their favorite TV episodes ever, from classic sitcoms to modern-day dramas, as well as pick a favorite episode from their own series. Our guests aren't just making great TV, they watch it too, and they're big fans just like you. On My Favorite Episode, some of the biggest names in TV share their creative inspirations and how those episodes influence them. You'll not only learn the secrets behind the most popular shows currently on television, but you'll get to celebrate the greatest TV of all time. New episodes drop every Monday. Find it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The masterpiece adaptation of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables debuts April 14th, the same night as the last season of Game of Thrones. Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Franke talk about both shows.
1: This week, we are discussing a literary adaptation that hits uh, April 14th. It is a sweeping story of uh, characters enmeshed in political upheaval in a world that looks very different from our own. That's right. This is PBS's Les Miserables. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We will get to Game of Thrones, but... For right now, we are enjoying the uh, Paris of Victor Hugo, and we are not enjoying any of the music because this is not an adaptation nope. of the beloved Broadway musical. All the characters are here, but they're they are they're not singing. They're just fighting for their rights and their lives on the streets of Paris. So, Caroline, you reviewed Les Mis for us. I am looking forward to screening, but I have not yet. Walk me through kind of the universe this creates.
4: Sure. Uh, so this is a six part mini-series, as you said, very sweeping, very epic. They clearly spent some money on this. It's a co-production with the BBC, so it has already aired in the UK. If you are listening from there and are like, we already did this. We have not over here. <laughs> um, it comes to us from Andrew Davies, uh, who you, if you don't recognize his name, you may have seen his work. He is known. He's known for literary adaptations. In this vein, uh, he is responsible for the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. Uh, he's done Bleak House, Vanity Fair, War and Peace. This is his lane. And the thing I always think of is at this winter's uh, Television Critics Winter Press Association tour. I think I just jumbled all the words, yeah. but it was a TV Critics tour in, in January. He was talking about why he wanted to do this, and he was asked about the musical. And he straight up said, oh, I hated the musical. I wanted to rescue this book from the musical. He was very blunt about it. David um, Oyelowo, who plays Javert, was horrified (laughs) and tried to stick up for the musical. But the point is that Davies wanted to bring it sort of back down to earth, really flesh out some of the plot lines that the musical did not, and sort of return the gravity to the text. Um, I think for the most part, it does that. It certainly has time, too, with six hours. Every hour is a solid hour, so it is six full hours. Um, And the cast is stacked, as well as Yellow o There's Dominic West as Valjean, who's fantastic. I have not actually seen Weston that much. I didn't watch The Affair, but he's incredible in this, and he has to shoulder a lot. And there is uh, Lily Collins as Fontine, and she gets a little bit more to do than Fontine usually does in adaptations. You get to see her life before she was made... um, she, was, she fell into poverty, um, so you sort of get more of a sense of how much she's lost and how easy it is, or how easy it was, well, is. I mean, yeah. part of the adaptation, too, is kind of pointing out how much still resonates today in terms of income inequality and class structure. Um, also, Olivia Colman is in this, in a part that, as I said in my review, she could have done in her sleep. She's been doing parts like this forever. She plays um, the sort of evil innkeeper's wife Oh, yeah. Madame
1: Thénardier, right? Mm-hmm. And and that is traditionally in the musical. That's a big, broad comic role. Right.
4: And she is funny with this, but, you know, the this is not a funny adaptation, I would say. She brings humor to it because she can do that so easily, as she did in The Favorite. But it is um, a, sm- a smaller part than maybe the promotional materials are now suggesting after she won her Oscar. <laughs> right. But overall i think if you're a fan of literary adaptations if you have any sort of passing interest in les mis this is a really handsome production very well acted uh i sort of lost some interest towards the end i think and i think the musical has trouble with this too once you get to the rebellion outside of the intimate family stuff you're like who are these people what are we doing i know this is important but we haven't really gotten to know them until suddenly they're rebelling. so around you know the fourth, fifth episode, it starts to lag a little bit, but it ends strong, and I think it will be a good big thing for PBS. The fact that they're premiering at opposite Game of Thrones same night means that they're at least confident they can find people who uh, might not be watching Game of Thrones or that they have their own audience and it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, I feel like, in, like recent Masterpiece uh, installments really have kind of found a very devoted audience in the post-Downton world. Like, I know that people really love Victoria and Poldark um mm-hmm. and they are not necessarily people who are super plugged into the uh Game of Thrones is of the world into right. the what's hot and buzzy and on the cover of magazines the yeah. shows of the world PBS so CBS knows they have
4: an audience yes. they're counting on that and you know they're airing six episodes opposite <laughs> Game of Thrones which also has
1: six episodes six
4: episodes so let's talk Game of Thrones Yeah let's
1: talk Game of Thrones <laughs> I feel like it's interesting going from talking about this show that has so much to say about uh, income inequality and the state of the world by conjuring a bygone world. And then going to talk about game of Thrones, which in its earliest going, I think was a really sharply political show with a lot on its mind. Mm -hmm. I will say, I am not talking in this segment about the eighth season. I have seen the first episode of the eighth season at the premiere in New York City. I'm not talking about it. It is strictly embargoed. (laughs) Talking about the seventh season, which aired two years ago, I feel as though in becoming the biggest and grandest show in the world, um, with all that it has to offer, um, in terms of the grandeur and the spectacle, um, I feel like it lost a little bit of its subtler tonalities, a little bit of its ability to comment on things i feel like some characters have gotten a little bit lost i do love watching it in part because of the absolute spectacle of the dragons of the sets of the costumes and of some of the really wonderful performances but i do feel like i miss the show that had really keen and sharp insights about power and what it makes people do.
4: Yeah, um I would agree with that. I was telling you sort of earlier. I, this is I was sick a couple of weeks ago and I didn't have the wherewithal to watch new shows. Um so I figured I would start Game of Thrones from the beginning again because I hadn't rewatched the first season in such a long time and I was sitting there and I was like is it the fever or is this an incredible family drama? <laughs> and I think it really was. Um because it could be on that smaller scale because it really committed to that. Um, and I agree that once it became this phenomenon, it sort of... I and understandably wanted to push the boundaries of what TV had done, could do, in terms of budget, spectacle, the whole thing. Um, and I will admit that when we found out that the last season would be six um, expanded episodes, not all of them are feature-length, we found out the the episode lengths. A couple of them are... Um, I was nervous because I was like, are we just doing that so that we can have bigger, splashier battle scenes? Not all of which I think the show even needed. A couple, sure. But are we just doing this because we can do it? Um, So I'm really hoping that in this last season, as they wind down everyone's stories, they kind of can bring it back to the basics of what made them so compelling in the first place.
1: And I think there's a good chance that that will happen. I think that like many shows, the Americans comes to mind mm. um, the penultimate season of the Americans, which was made when they knew they had two seasons left to go,
4: was fine
1: was fine and was widely criticized for wheel spinning. I didn't think it was necessarily horrible, and some people really hated it. <laughs> but I think it was just good enough, and I think it basically nothing happened, which is not it's not all about the plot, but that is a little problematic. And similarly, on the penultimate season of Game of Thrones, there were some huge, wonderful battle scenes, sure, but the plot felt pretty stalled, in, especially with certain characters who'd been really dynamic over the course of the run. I'm thinking of the season long uh, impasse about uh, whether or not John would bend the knee to mm. Daenerys, which they're great characters and they played the scenes well, but it was, it became to be a bit repetitive because they had. All the good stuff was going to happen in the final season. So my hope is that those characters get great, interesting, characterful stuff to play in the final hours.
4: Yeah, I think I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I think it was, especially after just watching that first season again, it is pretty incredible how far some of the characters and actors have come. Yes. Watching them grow up in these roles has been really fascinating. I'm in the tank for Sansa, but I think part of that is because Sophie Turner brought a lot to a role that I think a lot of people dismissed. Um, I don't know. I think I'm just really I'm just really interested to see how it plays out, not even as an existing fan of the books or anything, but just because this has been such a huge part of the TV landscape since 2011, its absence will be felt. You can I mean, for the past couple years, you can see studios and networks trying to find the next thing, um, even if it's not quite as literal as the you know, the Game of Thrones prequel that is in production with HBO. But people want to fill this gap, and I don't know how that's going to happen or if it quite can, but I'm really fascinated to see how they wrap it up.
1: Yeah, I think that this ending feels, at the, at the same time as, as Veep, which similarly has been an Emmy darling and is also in its final season right now, feels like the end of an era for HBO, which is currently under new ownership. It also feels like a bit of an end of an era for our culture. I feel like this show occupied an extremely special place, both by dint of the things it had to say over the course of a decade of extreme political precarity in our world, but also by dint of the way that it was just the thing that consumed all the oxygen. In television, it was the show that was able to be discussed at real and virtual water coolers so it's going to be interesting to see what we as television writers get up to writing about (laughs) in in its absence in a few weeks but until then there's always more tv where that came from game of thrones game of thrones game of thrones game
2: of thrones we talked with joe otterson variety tv reporter about game of thrones joe we've spent a lot of time in this episode talking about game of thrones Uh but uh given your expertise as a crack television trade reporter, wanted to talk to you for a minute about what the show coming to an end means for HBO and for the the television landscape as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um uh, one thing that's not a question just a mission statement for
0: no, this conversation. It. um no i it's um one thing we've been talking about a lot is you know with game of thrones ending this seems to kind of be like the the end of appointment tv as we know it like to the point where you know people you like where you have to watch the show day and date you know it comes out because if you don't you're going to be so far behind so i mean this is this is also like one of those shows i think that's you know i mean to to rally an audience of you know 20 million people a week i mean the chances of that happening in the future are probably pretty slim barring some kind of like massive event series or something you know what i mean if if julia roberts and meryl streep you know combine forces into some sort of like superhero marvel thing which i would actually really pay to see can we just do that instead of game of thrones sounds great i'm green it right now i would watch that um, but in terms of what this means for HBO, um, obviously it's, it's a huge loss for them, uh, even though they've obviously seen this coming you know, for some time. But they have the, um, the prequel pilot uh, currently in the works with Naomi Watts. And as I've said before, I mean, I think there's basically no chance that doesn't get picked up. I mean, because just given how rabid the fan base is for this show – Unless the pilot comes in just completely below everybody's expectations, which even that may not disqualify him because, as we know, Game of Thrones shot an entire pilot, you know, before the one we eventually saw, you know, they shot a pilot that they ended up reshooting significantly, and that turned into the show that has, you know, captivated the world. Um, but HBO also has a lot of really good stuff coming out this year, too. they got the final season of Veep. They've got Watchmen coming out. They Little Lies comes back. So, I mean, they're not going to be hurting for quality programming, but it's definitely a loss for them.
2: The, the show, and you, might, you, you probably are more up to date on the numbers than I am, the show gets about 20 million viewers per episode on HBO in the U.S.? Yeah, I don't have an
0: exact number in front of me right now, but I think, like, last season... um it like started off around like 16 million like and that's just live same day and then when you factor in delayed viewing multi-platform viewing I mean it's pr- I gotta imagine that's around 20 million yeah
2: and so can you put that in some context I mean first of all we know HBO is not as widely distributed as say a broadcast network or a right. uh, basic cable network so you're starting from a smaller pool of viewers mm-hmm. um, and and uh, how rare is it for a television show these days to get that not just that many people watching, but to get that many people watching live? <laughs>
0: well, it's funny. I mean, because, uh, you know, CBS routinely draws a very big audience. But the difference is with Game of Thrones, that Game of Thrones also draws a very, very large audience in the uh, key adults 18 to 49 demographic amongst younger viewers, whereas CBS audience is typically older. Um, so that's Older the re-
2: viewers being less inclined to use DVRs and watch things digitally precisely on their phones.
0: Um, but yeah, so I mean that, that's the big though, like uh factor that sets game of Thrones apart from any other show on TV is that it is just unbelievably popular across a pretty wide segment of the population. It cuts across a lot of demographics.
2: What has happened to TV in the last decade since Thrones premiered? You know, I mean, it's been, it's been about 10 years. Um, that has caused the landscape to change in such a way that people just aren't watching very many shows live. We're not having these shows that sort of function the way that Thrones does, where it is a cultural event you got to watch at the moment that it starts. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, streaming has played a very
0: big part in that on-demand viewing and then binge viewing is a very big thing, which I actually still, uh, there are certain shows that, that I do like to binge, but others I still really advocate for the weekly release model just because I, I hate the idea that like, let's say I'm a big fan of an hour long drama and then, you know, Netflix or whatever, whoever drops it, you know, the entire season on a Friday, if I don't watch the entire 13 episodes, season, so 13 hours of television over the course of a weekend, I'm pretty much behind everybody else, you know, because there are people who, you know, will wake up, you know it, but, Two o'clock in the morning when a show drops and start watching it right then, um, and then and just avoiding spoilers nowadays is I mean it's practically a martial art. You know you got to just be so careful about not uh, catching spoilers for stuff you're really big a big fan of. Um, but yeah, so I think that's the biggest thing, I and mean, then yeah, just on demand viewing and just this idea that you can watch pretty much whatever you want, whenever you want, and now wherever you want. I mean, you know, you can carry you know on my I mean on your phone, on your iPad, your computer, whatever. I mean, you can watch so many things at the touch of a button i mean so yeah this idea of you know having to watch something like on a particular night at a particular time is very foreign to uh younger people nowadays
2: stranger things for instance for netflix i mean that's a show that as best we can tell because we can't actually see viewership numbers but i mean it's a phenomenon (laughs) um on some sort of large scale Mm -hmm. but it's not consumed or talked about the same way because those no one's no one's going around saying, like, oh, did you see this week's Stranger Things? I right. Mean, it is just something that is consumed. Um, everyone sort of eats it at their own pace, right? Yeah.
0: I think uh, I know that's another um, unfortunate side effect of kind of, like, streaming and binge watching is that these shows have a much shorter shelf life um, in the in terms of, like, their um, – I don't want to say cultural relevance because just obviously, you know, Stranger Things is still very popular. But, I mean, in terms of, like, for how long we'll talk about when a new season of a show drops like Stranger Things, even if it is very popular – we're not really talking about it for as long a period of time as we would with a show like Game of Thrones, because with Game of Thrones, obviously, you know, they air one a week. There's how many episodes? Six episodes this season? Six episodes, yeah. Yeah, in season eight. Whereas, you know, in Stranger Things, if it's like, you know, 10, 13, whatever it is, you know what I mean? You watch all of them at once, and then you're done. You know, so I think that um, has been an unfortunate uh, side effect of a lot of, these sh- of, of the current, you know, state of television, is that, you know, these shows don't get as much shelf life in the, in the pop culture uh, spotlight
2: the end of sopranos sort of marked an end of an era for an end of an era rather uh for uh for hbo uh, and the new era was marked by the premiere of game of thrones in a way that was you know sort of could be neatly defined um i think we have all been sort of anticipating that the end of game of thrones would represent a new era for hbo but given some of the things that we've seen take place in the business in the last couple months Now more than ever, it looks like HBO. We're looking at a very, very different HBO next year uh, than we've had for the last 10 years. Is that right? Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, depending on what happens with, you know, the Warner Media streaming service and things. I mean, it's and obviously the departure of Richard Plepler, who has been, you know, a a key figure at HBO for decades um, and a lot of executives under him subsequently who have left. I mean, yeah, it's – I mean, I can't imagine what it's going to look like um,
2: in a year. I, don't, I have no idea. I mean, all that we know is that, you know, the supposed marching orders from uh, AT&T, their new corporate parent, is they want more content. Now, whether more content means content that's necessarily as good as Game of Thrones and some shows that we've come to see in the last few years from them, like, sure. you know, Veep and Girls and um, – uh, Barry and uh, Silicon Valley, and yep. you know, some of these other shows. Uh, you know, more recently, uh, we've had uh, a number of key dramas come from HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess it remains to be seen whether the quality will still be there, right? Yeah, absolutely,
0: um, because, again, I mean, just, yeah, H- Game of Thrones, not only – that's another great point about Game of Thrones is not only has it been, you know, this incredible cultural phenomenon, but, I mean, it is an awards favorite. I mean, like, th- the year it sat out for the Emmys, you know, uh, when there was that big gap between the seasons most recently, it, that's all I was talking about. Like, this, the ra- the drama race is wide open now. You know, it's anybody's race, and then as soon as Game of Thrones came back, it just – I mean, they, they took everything. I mean, they just it came right back in and just knocked out everybody Yet again, you know, so, I mean, it's tough to say, man. I mean, because whether or not, you know, more content means lower quality, I think that remains to be seen. But, I mean, if anybody can kind of pull off, you know, something like that's probably HBO. I mean, they have no shortage of experience in producing some of the best television that's ever been made. So you have to imagine, at least with that kind of institutional knowledge, that gives them a pretty significant leg up on their competition. But, I mean, you know, again, in, in, as these streaming wars uh, start to heat up, I mean, it's, it's anybody's race. Uh, Joe, what house do you identify with? I have to go with House Stark, as I am a northerner with uh, thick northern blood. And, uh, you know, I'm not um, built for this hot Southern California weather. I'm of the north. You know, I deserve better than a butcher. Uh, (laughs) You Game of Thrones fans out there will get that reference to season one. I believe that's episode two.
2: Uh, Yeah. I would say, yeah, House Stark. All right. King of the North. We thank you, and uh, we thank your thick blood for being here. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Lake Bell and Dak Shepherd of ABC's Bless This Mess.
4: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.